You can take your Bibles, open them once again to the book of James. This morning we'll be looking together at the fourth chapter of this great letter from James, the Lord's brother. And as you turn there to James chapter 4, I want us to try to think through a couple of scenes that might have happened in your home or workplace in the last uh, few weeks. So for the first scene, just imagine two kids, okay, both about eight years old. Okay, so perhaps you're babysitting for someone. Perhaps these are your kids. Perhaps these are kids from our church and you're working with them. It doesn't really matter. Just it matters that there's two of them. You're somewhere else, perhaps in another room, when all of a sudden you hear a big argument breaking out, lots of yelling. So you come in quickly, if, if they're not your kids, slowly if they are, because this happens all the time, right? So, so you come in and you say, all right, what happened? What's going on? The girl says, I was playing with this, whatever. He came over, pushed me to the ground, and took it. So you turn to the boy and you ask, what happened? The boy says, well, I was playing with it first. She came over, grabbed my ear until I dropped it. And I was just trying to get it back. And now here's, here's my question. What are you going to do about this? Or more specifically, as you try to counsel these kids, as you try to make peace between them, what are you going to do? What is it that you want both of them to see about what just happened? The second scene, basically all I want you to do is raise the ages of the participants, about 20 to 30 years, okay? And you just change the details of it. So it's your workplace. Tuesday morning, you walk in and immediately realize that two of your coworkers are really upset with each other. You immediately feel the tension in the room, you know there's conflict between the two of them. Okay, now the question this time isn't what you're going to do about it. Instead, I just want you to think, what's behind the conflict? What's the source of that interpersonal workplace conflict? And perhaps you think, but you didn't give us any specifics, so how can we know that? But I, I just want you to think hard about it. Can you know what's behind the conflict without knowing the details of it. Now, now, last week, we finished James 3. So you can look back at the end of James 3. And throughout the whole text, there was an emphasis on peace. Right, James first warns, if you look at James 3, verse 14, about having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. If that's what's in your hearts, There'll be disorder, no peace in your relationships. But then it ends in verses 17 and 18 with James pointing us to the wisdom of God, which if it gets in our hearts and takes root in there, it'll produce things like first, purity, second, peace, and many other things like gentleness and good fruits. And then verse 18, the last verse of chapter 3, says this kind of proverb, a, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And it's like there's lots of peace, right, in the end of chapter 3. 
And I think the idea is when, when God's people are filled with his wisdom, there'll be a, a place of peace. That, that's what will be produced. And whenever peace is lost among God's people, there'll be peacemakers to step right in and restore the peace. And in that kind of community where peace reigns, there'll be precious fruit, a harvest of righteousness everywhere you look. But then I want you to look at the very next verse, at the two questions that James asks immediately after that. So kind of ignore the chapter break a bit. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Now that's basically what I asked earlier. Whether at home or at work, where does conflict come from? What's behind interpersonal conflict? And here's where it's good to point out that James isn't talking primarily about problems just like out there somewhere. His questions are first and foremost about conflict within the church. Did you notice that? What causes quarrels and fights among you, among us. Not just out there, but here. I want us to think carefully about his answer. I, I don't know how popular his answer would have been in his own day, but I'm pretty sure his answer is not popular in our day. So I want to look at it. Look at verse 1 again. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it this? that your passions or desires or pleasures are at war within you. Isn't it that? Now you go back to that scene with those two kids who are fighting. If you ask the girl, what's going on? Why aren't you getting along? What would she say? She'd say something like, it's because of him. He is the problem. And I imagine that your coworkers, though a lot older, would probably say the same thing. Unfortunately, even within a church where there's conflict, you'll often hear the same thing. It's because of him or her or them. But what does James point to when he raises the question? He points to what's within, to the passions and the pleasures that are at war within the heart. I mean, think about that. He doesn't even get specific about the conflict. He asks a very general question. Where do conflicts, battles come from in the church? And he does not point to our circumstances or our personalities. And he does not allow us simply to blame someone else. Instead, James points to the passions that are at war within our own hearts. To put that another way, at the heart of relational problems is the problem of the heart. When, when two children have conflict, what's at the heart of the problem? It's the problem of their hearts. The desires that are at war within them. At least one child in the conflict, but more often both children wanted something, didn't get it, and because they didn't get it, there's conflict. When two brothers or sisters 
in the church have conflict, what's at the heart of it? At least one, but typically both, want something a lot. Did not get it. And because of that, there's conflict. Now look at verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you see it? Left to ourselves. I want what I want. You want what you want. And when one or both of us don't get it, there's usually conflict. Now, what do you make out, out of that statement? So you murder. Like, what do you picture going on in the church? You desire things. You don't get them. So you murder. And what's the deal with that? Do you, do you picture that there is like literally murder happening in the churches? Now, maybe it's not impossible that James is saying that, but I seriously doubt that James is saying that these Jewish Christians are regularly murdering one another in the church. For one reason, I think it'd be very surprising if, if that's actually like a regular problem that he only talks about this for one verse. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, that would be one of the bigger <laughs> issues uh, in the letter. But, but what seems more likely, uh, in light of how James teaches so much like Jesus, uh, his brother, that I think he's speaking probably very similarly to how Jesus talks. Remember how Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which James refers to this, or is like that in so many places, Jesus says that being angry in your heart with your brother or sister is like murdering them in your heart. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Similarly, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. So even if we just consider James, just the last chapter, you remember one of the things that happens in conflict is often the tongue is unleashed. And, and remember some of the descriptions, things like, James says the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So I, I think this is the kind of thing he's getting at. But let's get back and look at verse 2 again. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you don't get what you want, so you fight and you quarrel. And then he goes on. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I think we have to take those last two lines together. <clears throat> you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't get because you ask wrongly. <clears throat> on the one hand, James is saying you don't have what you want because you're not asking God for it. Now, why not? If my own experience is any indicator, okay, if we're talking about the passions and desires of my heart that are not pleasing to God, I don't ask God for those because I know I shouldn't ask him for them. They're not worth asking for. But then the second line says, but if we do ask, James says you ask wrongly, which is to say you pray to God with the wrong motives. What is that? Specifically to spend whatever you can get on your own pleasures and passions. Now, you have to stop and think about this. This is not a pretty scene here, okay? Those desires 
in our hearts for our own fulfillment, our own pleasure, our own fame, our own lust, our own happiness can get such a hold of our hearts that we don't even want to pray anymore. Or perhaps even worse, we will pray, but only to ask God to give us the desires of our hearts which are selfish and self-exalting. In other words, sometimes it gets so bad, these desires get such a hold in our hearts that we're willing to try to use God to get them. I mean, that's what he's getting. We, we, we don't get what we want because we don't ask. We're probably too ashamed to ask for, for some of the things that we really want in our hearts. But then sometimes we actually do ask, but with the wrong motives. We ask God to give us these things we use God as a means to get what we really want. That's the first section of our text today. Now, if you, if you want that to settle in a bit, all you need to do is think about the last conflict you were in with your spouse, with a roommate, brother, sister in the church. What was behind that conflict? Now, perhaps James isn't giving the only possible answer here, but I can say this. I would be surprised to find even one interpersonal conflict that is not sourced in the passions of the heart. Like in that conflict maybe you're thinking of with a spouse or a friend, at least one person in it, but typically both, probably wanted something too much. And when they didn't get it, there was conflict. Now, here's where I want us to think about one of the key questions to following this text. I think this is the biggest one. Okay. What do we call desires of our hearts that are so strong that if we don't get them, it actually affects us so much that it ruins our relationships with others or even our relationship, fellowship with God? What are passions called that control our hearts so much that if we can't get them on our own, we might even consider trying to use God to get them? What do you think? I think we'd have to say that those things, those pleasures, those passions that we want so much that if we don't get them, we'd be in conflict with each other or with God, those things are idols of our hearts. Because at that moment, at least, I want something else more than I want God and what he wants. And that is idolatry. And do you know what James calls that? Look at the next two or three words, depending on your translation. Verse four, you adulterous people. Now, I was thinking this week of how confrontational that is. I mean, what would have to be happening for you to call someone an adulteress or an adulterer? I mean, it sounds so extreme. Why does he say it? 
I believe it's because of what we just talked about in the first three verses. When the desires of our hearts get so strong that if we don't get them fulfilled, it will change how we care about others and how we love God. Those things are idols. And one of the consistent teachings of the whole Old Testament is that idolatry, loving something else more than God or even equal with God, is spiritual adultery. It is all over the Old Testament. And James is the first book in the New Testament writing to Jewish readers. This is part of their thinking. And that's why he sounds just like the prophets in the Old Testament when he says, you adulterous people. Or in fact, I would prefer it to be translated as it is in the New American Standard Translation, you adulteresses. Why do I say that? For one thing, it is a feminine noun, adulteresses, but it's more than that. James is drawing on the common picture throughout the Old Testament when he says, you adulteresses. What picture? We read about it earlier in Jeremiah chapter 2. Do you remember? When God says to his his people who are chasing after other gods, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Then God says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness? The picture's hinted at there, but it's even stronger in other Old Testament passages. God is often pictured as the husband of his people, the bride. And sadly, this picture shows up all over the Old Testament when God's people give their love and their devotion and their affection to other gods, to other passions, to other pleasures, to idols. And it's always called, or regularly called, spiritual adultery. For just maybe one example, you could read the book of Hosea, maybe the most well-known Hosea chapter 3, God specifically tells Hosea, his prophet, to go and love a woman who is an adulteress to picture his love for his people who are so unfaithful to him. In Hosea 3.1, Hosea says, God said to me, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. That's only scratching the surface of this graphic picture throughout the Old Testament. If you want to read another whole chapter about this, you could read Ezekiel 16. It's one of the most graphic pictures in the whole Bible about this. But the point right now is that when James says this, he's drawing on that picture. And just think of the implications when he says, you adulteresses. Part of the implication of that is that God has covenanted himself to us, like in marriage. God has sought us out, loved us, pursued us, and promised himself to us. And yet, sadly, our hearts are often captured by other loves, by other pleasures, by gods that cannot satisfy, by idols that fracture our relationships with other people and even with God. 
So look again at verse 4. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, to be a friend of the world is more to, than being like a friend on a Facebook with the world. Right? To be a friend of the world is to give our affection, our loyalty, our love to the world system that hates God and rejects God. It's to give God, at best, divided love and devotion. Half-hearted allegiance. Do you know what God thinks about half-hearted love? That sort of friendship with the world is hostility toward God. God says, Any, anybody who chooses to be a friend of the world makes himself my enemy. That's similar to 1 John, where John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Because if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Or it's like Jesus who might say, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one, hold to the other, or love the one, hate the other. You cannot serve God, and in that text, and money. It's the same kind of teaching. There can be no competing allegiance when it comes to God. He doesn't tolerate it. Now verse 5. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in you? And you say, what, what does that verse mean? All right. That verse can be pretty confusing. And I'm just going to say, in short, the ESV and the NIV, I think, capture it well. And that's good, because if we were looking at another translation, it would require a lot more explanation. But if you look at that verse again, look at verse 5. The ESV does a great job with this verse, I think. Or do you suppose it's for no purpose that the scripture says, He, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he's put within you. Now to be clear, if you look in the Old Testament for that verse, there is no Old Testament verse that says exactly that. But that teaching is throughout the Old Testament. You say, what teaching? What theme? What's, what's that verse getting at? Can you see it? Now think with me. Verse 4, James says, that if we have divided devotion to God, what are we? Adulteresses. He then asks, or don't you know that friendship with the world, having affection for the world makes you an enemy of God? And now he asks another question, or do you think the scripture speaks for no reason when it says God yearns jealously for you. And what's this about? This is about the jealousy of God. You know, God is jealous for you, for your love. 
God gives us our very life. And his longing is to have all of our love, all of the time. And that's throughout the Old Testament. God is jealous. You ever seen that in the Old Testament? Because you don't see it a lot in the New Testament. It's there, but it's not as often, it's not as talked about as often. But I want you to look at a couple texts with me, because this is an aspect of God that I rarely hear people talk about. The jealousy of God for the love of his people. Just take two examples from the book of Exodus. So we'll just look at one book. Go back to Exodus. You remember where the Ten Commandments are? Exodus chapter what? 20. All right? I want you to go back and I want you to look at Exodus 20. And I just want to highlight that this aspect of God is in the Ten Commandments. So Exodus 20, verse 1. This is what God says from Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then I want you to look down to verse 5. You shall not bow down to them, other gods, or serve them. Why not? Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Do you hear it? The jealousy of God right there in the Ten Commandments. God says it's why we must never worship or give our affection to other gods because he's so jealous. All right? One more. Exodus 34. And Exodus 34 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. You can read it on your own and figure out why. But, but I want to look at one verse in it. God is warning his people that they're not even in the land yet, the promised land, and he's warning them when you get in there, never partner with the people in that land. And if you find any idols, what are they supposed to do to them? Destroy them completely so they don't get a hold of your hearts, okay? But I want to look at why. Look at verse 14, Exodus 34, verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name <coughs> is jealous, is a jealous God. Have you ever seen that before? The jealousy of God isn't just mentioned in the law. It's part of God's very name. It's part of the essence of who he is. How we're supposed to think about God. Our God is jealous for the wholehearted love of his bride. He tolerates nothing less. So James says, back in James, when you go back there, or do you suppose it's for no reason that the scripture says this? That God yearns jealously for you, for your love. God wants our wholehearted commitment. All that we are, all of the time. 
God wants us to love him most, to delight in him most, to treasure him most, all of the time. And what do you feel when you start thinking about that? <laughs> like, what do you want to say to that? And perhaps you feel like saying, that's impossible. I honestly just don't think I can do that. I mean, I want to love God like this. I might dream about loving God like that. But I feel in my own heart more like that songwriter guy who said, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, if that's what you're thinking or feeling, you feel the same way I do when I work through this text or when I think about the jealousy of God. But more importantly, if that's what you're feeling, I think you're exactly where you should be at this point in James. I think the whole book of James leads us to that realization that we cannot, on our own, do even the most basic thing of Christianity, which is to love God with all our hearts. As far as I can tell, that's right where we should be as we read our last verse for today, which I think is the best news in all of James. Verse 6. But God gives more grace. There it is, right there. That's part two of the cure for the problem of the heart. Last week, the wisdom of God needs to get in your heart. And this week, the grace of God. God has greater grace than our problems. God has more than enough grace available to enable us to live the way he's called us to live. Authentic Christianity is supernatural. We first need God to graciously give us new hearts, new life, to make us be born again through trusting in Christ. But even as Christians, the only way to actually practice authentic Christianity is if God gives you grace every day. It's only through His supernatural help that you can actually live like Jesus. That's the cure for the wandering heart. Without grace, there is no hope. But if that's true, if it's only the grace of God that can enable the people of God to fulfill the call of God, then what should we ask? How do I get it? Because I got no hope apart from it, right? And that's the rest of verse 6. Look at 6. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The only path to the grace of God is the hard road of humility. God gives grace to a particular kind of person. 
to those who know they need him and who are willing to admit it. What God wants is for us to recognize who we really are, how much we really need him, and to tell him that we need him. Without the grace of God, we would all still be dead in our sins. It's God's grace that we're even here today, that I'm standing here, that you're sitting there. We are what we are, only by the grace of God. I know we're not what we wish we were, right? But we are only what we are by the grace of God, and we will only ever be what God wants us to be by the grace of God. Do we believe that? Do you express that to God on a regular basis? Is that your attitude toward God? And is that mean in your attitude toward others? If we think we're going to be fine on our own, we will be on our own. God always opposes that kind of pride and self-dependence. But if we'll humble ourselves before God, what better news is there than this, that God promises his grace to you, more grace than your problems. God has available and he promises it to the humble. As we close this morning, there's a lot we could think about. I think this text is the, is the high point, the climax of the whole letter, culminating with the promise of the grace of God. Because this text is the place where I think we feel the lowest in James as it starts to settle in how inadequate we are. And then this is the place where God binds us up the most with the promise of his grace if we'll just humble ourselves before him. But I want to put three things before us as we close, just to think about and to chase this week. One, conflict with other people, especially brothers and sisters, is always a big deal. For one thing, it's a sign that this other person and I are probably not as wise as we think we are, at least not with the wisdom from above. But in our text today, James points out that one of the primary sources, if not the main source, of all interpersonal conflict is what's in the hearts of those involved in the conflict. It's our passions and our desires that are at war within us. In almost every relational conflict, at least one person involved, but often both have set their hearts too much on something other than God. And they didn't get what they wanted. And so now there's conflict. And we got to think, do you have any unresolved conflicts right now, here, among your brothers and sisters, or at home, or at work? At least one wise thing to do in any conflict is to examine your own heart. What is it that you really want? Even, let's suppose, and this would be awesome, right? If you're not at all to blame, I mean, not even the least bit, if you'll still examine your own heart 
and think about what is it that I really want in this. I think God will often soften your heart and you'll begin to realize that that other person, maybe it's all their fault, but you'll start to realize that that other person is just another struggling person like me. Somebody who's made in the image of the God I love. Second big idea in this text, God is just as jealous today as he was for the love of his people throughout the Old Testament. We have to guard ourselves against the lie that God doesn't really care that much what I love or what I find my fulfillment in. God cares because he yearns jealously for you. He wants all of you. All of us and all of all of us. Do we somehow think that God wants anything less than, than this fundamental verse? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Do you think God wants anything less than that? And third, I hope that we leave today with hope, not in ourselves, but in the grace of God. Think of those precious words, but God gives more grace. His well never runs dry. The God who did not spare his own son Jesus, but who gave him up for us all, how will he not? with Jesus freely give us all that we need. God is on our side. He loves us. He sent his son to save us. He knows how to sustain us. He has the power to change us, and he's got the heart to do it. He's for us. He calls us to things, and he's got grace available to enable us to live for Jesus. God has more than enough grace for us to be able to make it through the next seven days until we come back again. But God's got more than just enough grace to help us survive. He's got enough grace to actually help us to live and to obey and to love and to bridle our speech and to be kind and compassionate. <clears throat> But don't look within for that. Don't look within for the strength to run. That well is going to run dry very quickly. Look in humility to your loving Father. Keep your eyes on the sun and walk by the Spirit's power. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news of your promise of grace for the wandering heart. Lord, if, if there's anyone here who does not really even know you through Jesus, I pray that you would grant them grace and give them faith 
new life. Lord, for all of us, every one of us who's here, we know and we confess together today that we cannot give you what you deserve on our own. We know our hearts too well. And so we ask you for grace that you would give us enablement through your spirit, through your presence with us, through your powerful word to obey this week, to love, to walk in the steps of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.